this land if they live righteously. Time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and this is one that, you know what, quite frankly, can I, I don't think I can demand, but I'm going to ask very strongly that you take a moment at the end of listening to this episode and, uh, you know, do one of a couple things. Maybe you want to uh, leave us a review. Please do so. Uh, you can find the Cultural Hall wherever you're obviously listening to this from. And if you happen to be an Apple listener, you can say, hey, and put some words behind about how much you like the Cultural Hall. Maybe you don't want to do that. That's fine. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? I've got so much money. I'd just like to give a little bit to the Cultural Hall. You can become a Patreon saint. Uh, You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Because after you listen to this episode, you'll be like, what? Are you kidding me? Richard Osler, Richard Bushman, Richard Turley, all in the same episode. How do they do it? No one else, and I mean this, no one else has done this. A bunch of Richards. It's this episode of the Cultural Hall. Honored, as always, to be able to uh, sit down with Richard Osler. How are you, sir? I'm good, Richie. You're doing good work. Oh, listen, you're always so nice. In fact, here's the thing. Uh, Richard Osler may be the nicest uh, LDS, uh, or whatever we're supposed to say, um, podcaster in the space. Um, You recently had a guy that I had interviewed on, and I want you to know this because I think that this is significant. At the end of the episode... You were very kind to me, uh, and you didn't need to be. And I and I just think it's commendable that you uh, that you always show up as like a kind person more than you need to be, well, right? Like there's lots of kind people, but like you know, in what you're doing with the you know, listen, learn, and love, and your podcast and the books, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit here in a second. When I get around to it, after I compliment you like crazy. Uh, <laughs> Is that I mean it's it's genuine I guess is what I'm trying to say, thank uh, and I and I appreciate the heck out of that. Thank you. Uh, I also should say uh, I'm uh, th- this is uh, an unofficial passing of the torch uh, in some ways, Richard, because uh, you know life has been a little bit busy for me and I kind of keep up on what number you're on in producing your episodes and I see what number I'm at and I'm going to be eclipsed. No, for a little while while I have said, you know, I am the most producing and technically I am because I have like a couple hundred that don't have numbers associated with it. There you go. The public facing, you will be the guy uh, that has the most episodes uh, published that is a positive force for good within the church. So I handedly pass you that torch and say congratulations, sir. You will always be the trailblazer and <laughs> brave soul who stepped in this space, and that won't ever be replaced, regardless of the number of episodes on other platforms. So, well, uh, and I and I have to tell you, it's so fun for me too. And I promise we're going to talk about the book. Everybody, that's like, what are we doing here? Are we just catching up? Is this social hour with the Richards? Um, but uh, uh, it's so fun for me to be able to hear when you chat with someone. And when I'm able to chat with someone yeah. and the the things that, that you're able to bring to the table and that I'm able to bring to the table, because, you know, I'm sure that people listening to this go, okay, well, listen, this person's doing the book tour, you know, they're going to talk with Kurt over at Leading Saints, and then they're going to talk to someone from one of the LDS Living Properties, and then they're going to talk to Richard Osler, then they're going to talk to Mormon Land, and then they're going to, but I think it's commendable to to note that you know, when you when you're visiting with people, it's, you're able to go places that I don't go or or you know choose not to go. 
and then vice versa that we're able to to really be able to to share these people that are sharing themselves. So kudos to you. Thank you. You nice guy. All right, enough of this. I'm getting starting to get sick to my stomach a little bit with how nice I'm being. That's not me. I'm not the nice guy. You are. You um sent me a book in the mail the other day, and I have to tell you uh so the cover of the book looks similar to the cover of other books. I should mention, Listen, Learn, and Love, Building the Good Ship Zion looks like the cover of your other couple books. And in my mind, I was thinking, and this is terrible of me, I thought, did he just not like it the last time he wrote it? And he just changed some things and now he's putting it, but it's a whole completely different book. So let's start there. Yeah, it's the third book. And um, it is called good, Building the Good Ship Zion. And if it's okay, can I just read a little bit of the introduction? Of course. Um, um, it talks about President Ballard's talk about stay in the book, stay in the boat and hold on. And um, once while walking my neighborhood, I reflected on the idea of the boat. My mind pivoted from the blessings I gained by staying in the boat to what I could do to make the boat a warm, welcoming place for others, a place of belonging where everyone feels needed, included. I've met with hundreds of good folks who want to stay in the boat, most of whom agree with President Ballard, but often wonder if they are truly welcome and needed in the boat. In fact, some of them even feel pushed out. During that walk, I tweeted out what we can do to make the boat a more welcoming and accepting. Um, these were a, a series of tweets on the subject, some of which are now chapters in the book. People offered many thoughtful responses they brainstormed. One response from Matthew G. Holland of Las Vegas, Nevada, no relation to the Holland family, especially stuck with me and provided motivation in the book. He wrote, it's really, ju it's just a really big boat. What a powerful and simple concept. Earlier in my life, I never would have looked inward to consider what I can do to help people currently in the boat feel like they belong. I assumed they were having the same fulfilling boat ride as me. Mm. Someone bravely opened up about not feeling comfortable in the boat. I put it all back on them to get comfortable, perhaps even cause them to feel embarrassed for sharing their feelings, concerns, or experiences, perhaps shaming them to get in line so they figuratively sit down sit back down and stop rocking the boat. All of this just added their wondering if they were truly welcome. I failed to realize that the good ship Zion is strong enough to be a safe place if we want to stand or sit, and I need to learn to be comfortable with that. Perhaps it strengthens us to bring our whole selves as we jointly come into Christ and build Zion. In short, it was hard to see the beam in my own eye. Mm. So that's a little bit from the introduction, and then it's about seven chapters of just individual topics that we can do to make the boat more welcoming. And the reason why is I believe in the boat and I believe in the blessings that come from membership in the church and the healing and the hope and the perspective it gives us. And I met with a lot of people, Richie, just like you, that have a testimony of a restored gospel that sometimes feel if they're welcome. Have you yourself ever wondered if you felt welcome? It's, it's an interesting thing, and and it's not a completely innocent question because I think the majority of my life, I have always sort of felt welcome, but in the last maybe year or so, it's not that I haven't felt welcome, but I have looked around the room when worshiping and going, you know, if this is a, if this is a ship, this is a cruise ship full of people that I don't know that I normally would be on a cruise ship full of. And, 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 or like, they're all right that I'm here right now. 
but also like, why aren't there other people like me on this cruise ship? So let me retreat that all back and ask you, have you ever felt like that where you were like, I don't know, yeah, probably a couple right times. I'm generally kind of in the bullseye of LDS privilege, um, just age. And, um, but, uh, when my wife and I were dating 35 years ago, I opened up about, you know, I'm left center politically and she's right center, right politically. And that was 35 years ago. And we have not changed it's, you know, we still have, we're in a mixed political marriage. And <laughs> as we've grown up, we haven't tried to move each other to either side and we haven't moved our six kids with an agenda to get them to dad's side of thinking or mom's side of thinking. And we look at that as we're completely unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we have differences and we actually think it's a good thing. Yes. To your question, sometimes I feel like a minority with my political views in my LDS congregation is mostly not left-leaning Democrat, not left-leaning mm-hmm. politically. And so, um, and then when I started to say kind things about LGBTQ people, um, supportive of the church and our doctrine, our leaders, just something culturally um, most Latter-day Saints don't do is just proactively say kind things about people that group of people which has been a central focus of what I've been trying to do within our faith, as you're aware. And so those are a couple of times that's helped me to understand that I don't always fit the all the checklists of a typical Latter-day Saint. And to your point, I bet most of us don't. And sometimes we wonder if we belong or we're needed or did. And that's certainly true of groups that I've talked about in the past, like LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Yeah, and it's interesting to because to, to kind of add into that, like sometimes it's like, yes, of course I'm needed. And man, is the church going to have this kind of voice if I decide not to go anymore? But also it's like, man, I'm just tired. I just want to go and I just want someone to go. Yeah, I feel that same way, <laughs> you know? And um, I know that in some cases we can't expect people to be able to feel, you know, the same way that we do. So I understand that. But man, sometimes to be that you know, some people will call it disruptor, not in the, you know, I'm standing and disrupting a class, but being that person that looks at something a little bit different or being, uh, you know, someone that has a different political view, a different religious view, a different accepting view, whatever the thing may be. Like there, there will be those times where I'm just like, yes, I am uniquely called to do that. And also it's so exhausting. Can someone else join me in this yoke for a minute so I don't feel like I'm doing this alone? Is there anyone else here that feels this way? Can we do this together? And I think quite honestly that sometimes people just get tired. I like, I agree with all that. And um, I think that's the reality for life as a lot of Latter-day Saints. Is there if I just read the seven chapters in the book? Of course. So um, this book is on Amazon and at Deseret Book, and these, as as I we pointed out earlier, not it's not like you got to read chapter one to get chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, this is typical of my second, first, and second book, and most of the content of this is not my experience for your listeners. It's me elevating the voices of others in these different groups because I know that when we hear perspectives like Richie sharing his thoughts, our hearts change because we see things in a way that makes us better ministers. We can better mourn, bear more in comfort. So no, chapter one is loving members who are four-year sitters. And this is out of a conversation we had when I served in my YSA assignment, should we pass the sacrament to those in the foyer? And there was some comments like, if they were really faithful, they'd be in the chapel. And we looked in the handbook and thought, there's no rule that prevents us from, and so let's let's not create new rules. Let's pass the sacrament to those in the foyer. 
and this chapter is not a real heavy, serious doctrinal chapter. It just it just teaches a principle. We shouldn't create rules, and we shouldn't be sifters. We should be gathers. Was there also part of a that conversation that was like, that's missing the point. They're yes. there. That's what they're there for. If they're in the hall or, you yes. know, they're standing underneath the basketball standard with their arm up in the air and you need to bring them the sacrament. It doesn't matter. They're in the building. That's the point. We don't have to do it the with our right hand and pass and th- yeah, that's so all the things. We miss the point. Sorry, I get really charged. Well, agreed. And we leave the building to pass sacrament to people that are sick. And so yes. um, we're called to be gathers, not sifters. And then this chapter also has stories from four-year sitters that I've never considered. Why I've never been a four-year sitter. Um, I've been late, missed the sacrament. I've never sure. felt more comfortable in the foyer. But then I realized why actually people are, why they're in the foyer. Chapter two is, is it okay to turn down a calling? And it's kind of this idea of is did when we got baptized, did we covenant then to accept every calling that's given to us? And for some, that can feel overwhelming. And I saw this firsthand as I share in the chapter, a high counselor that left the church during my mission in England 35 years ago. And it's sort of showing that, you know, what's our doctrine behind that? And Maybe it's the right thing not to accept every calling and still be a committed Latter-day Saint. Chapter number three, and this is a serious chapter, is ministering to those with church-generated pain or trauma. And I had a LDS therapist write this chapter because I'm not a therapist. Her name is Tanya Miller. And it's this space where um, some people have painful experiences at church. It could be a member. It could be a leader. And it causes trauma, either capital T trauma or lower T trauma. She talks about four types of trauma and our flight or natural flight or fight response is to leave. Mm-hmm. And, but those that we may also have a testimony of the restored gospel. So somehow we have to heal from that trauma. And um, I think the first step is to acknowledging in our restored church, this is a possibility and a reality for some. Yeah. This is a serious chapter about, you know, acknowledging this can exist. We can still have faith in our church and our leaders, um, but gives us better principles and ministering insights to help those that have had really painful um, experiences. And she's brave. She shares about her brother and her son. Uh, so she brings the perspective of an active Latter-day Saint um, and her and her understanding of not only therapy, but the atonement. Just to add on to that, the thing that I think that is additionally interesting about that in particular is the dissonance that is sometimes created where you go, how can this thing that is so good yeah. have this? It can't be. You know, people, it almost it is, it is that that literal dissonance where they're like, I don't understand how it can be a good thing that, you know, saving lives and eternal life and all these things and also have you know these instances of trauma that are that are created whether like you mentioned big t or little t like it is it is difficult for we as humans to go it can be the greatest thing ever and and have created a traumatic you know experience for said individual it can be you know a a place that this person doesn't feel comfortable for this and this and this and be the place that provides the saving ordinances that allow us to live with our heavenly father. Instead we go, well, if it's this, it can't, it can't clearly be this. And so I appreciate the heck out of that chapter. 
Yeah, and our gut reaction, mine is, is to defend the church and minimize people's experience that have different. I've learned to do, to I can sit with people in their pain and often that heals them. I, I'm an analogy guy, Richie, so I think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as this pure water um, that only is the source of healing and hope and perspective and all the things, and it needs an institution to hold the water, which I think is the pool. Hmm. Below the water line is the porcelain lining of the pool, which represents our interaction with church and people and culture. And most people, when they lean back on their bare skin, have a really positive experience below the water, but some don't. And there's kind of jarring parts of the porcelain that may be impacting people in a way that causes pain, even if we can't see what's below the waterline that they're interacting with. So that's kind of how I try to share this concept. Um, So that's a pretty serious chapter. And I encourage local leaders, parents, everybody to read that because I think we'll have better insights on how to support people. Well, and to your point, that's what I love about everything that you do when you chat with folks in the books that you write. It is what what I uh, particularly love about how you present it. It's not, I, Richard Osler, am right, and everyone needs to get in line behind these things. It isn't. And I, and you know that there are some people who do those kind of things. If you don't agree with me, you are clearly intellectually inferior I can't wait till you rise to the level of where I'm at. And that's just not, you know, that's not you. And it's not the way that things go. But what I love is it's the opportunity to say, hey, here's a story. Here's a person's experience. Here's a different way of looking at something. And, you know, there are some things that when I read or when I listen to you, I go, ah, I'm not so, yeah, maybe. Fine. But, but, but I do listen and I go, you know, there is part of that that I had never considered before. There is an aspect of that that, you know, could be difficult. The ability to just sit with someone and have them say hard things about the church that I don't necessarily believe. I don't have to tell them they're wrong. I don't have to tell them, oh, it couldn't have possibly be. They didn't mean to do that. No one would have ever done all those things that sort of minimize it. It's just, it's a it's a walk in someone else's shoes for a minute. And the way that you are able to present that within all these chapters, but in particular within that one, I think is just... And, uh, you know, written by someone else, but being able to go, wow, okay, okay. Um, You're very kind and well said. The next chapter, chapter four, is how should we treat those who leave the church? And this isn't a chapter, an invitation to leave the church, but it's it's responding to President Nelson's charge to um, reduce divisiveness. And sometimes there's more tension between those that are in the church and left the church versus those that have never joined the church. And Mm. I don't think it needs to be that way, but it needs work on both sides. So this is voices from both sides talking about how to do better. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, do you find like that some of these things, it, it's um, it's interesting to me the older I get. And since you're so much older than me, that's why I asked this question of you. Like 40 years older. <laughs> yeah, stop it. Stop it. Um, but we're like, there's some things that they're they're very simple, which doesn't mean easy. But like, because we as humans, because we as members of the church, we we make things more difficult. We lose the simplicity, certainly of the gospel or like, you know, the, the question is, how should we treat others, you know, those that leave the church? Well, we should treat them well. Like it's, it's not, you know, uh, it, it's hard sometimes to do, especially if they're saying disparaging things about the church or, you know, there's those different things. There's ways that it can be 
difficult, but the very base of the question, like as I, as a first glance, when, because with the book, you sent me kind of an outline of all the chapters and I was like, how should we treat them? I'm like, well, Richard, we should treat them <laughs> next you know, like brothers and sisters. How about we do something else? Can we get a little deeper? But I think that the way that it's walked out is pretty great. Um, chapter five. Yeah. Um, chapter five is supporting members dealing with death. And this has been a blind spot for me, for your listeners, because I've I would always just kind of give platitudes that everything's fine in the next life because of our plan and salvation and probably not sit with people in the pain of of today. And I worry that some of our readers have pointed out in a culture, um, we may create a culture where faithful Latter-day Saints grieve for a short period of time. And because they have such a strong testimony of the plan of salvation, they move on. Mm. And I think we need to allow ongoing grief, especially in very difficult situations, and not create a culture that a faithful missionary stays on their mission because they're so faithful and they didn't come home. And I think we need to create a space for people to grieve and come home and and still have a testimony they're going to be with their loved one in the next life. And so there's some brave people that share heartbreaking stories in this chapter. One woman who lost her brother to suicide and then her sister and her sister's twin kids. I'm in a car accident driving home from church. Um, Just heartbreaking stories, but because they're walking this road, they have incredible insights on things we should or shouldn't say. And I wish I'd read a chapter like this decades ago, because I have not always known what to say to somebody or should I keep the conversation going? And so there's, there's a woman who was the driver of a car when she fell asleep and, um, her own child died in the car crash. And she talks about that on Mother's Day. And so Ugh. these are not meant to just make us sad, but these brave authors, some that have written books about their experience, I wanted to elevate their voices. So that's a little bit about chapter five. Is it okay if I go to six or do you have any uh, No, I want to ask you a question. Come on. All right, good. I, I want to ask you a question about that. How? So now as you look back, you know, I mean, we got a couple more chapters we got to talk to, so we'll keep it relatively brief. But like, what is, what is it that you've changed? What is it that you do differently to show up for those that are grieving? I, I keep talking. I thought it it opened wounds to keep talking about the person that had died. And I've learned to keep talking about the person and use the person's name. Mm. Most people I talk to are glad that their loved one hasn't been forgotten they haven't moved on. We may have moved on to the next fuel in our ward or the next experience. They have not moved on. Um, doesn't mean they don't believe in the plan of salvation and they're working through the stages of grief, but sure. um, that's, pr- and not to give a platitude like, well, you'll see them in the next life or right. know the plan of salvation. That keeps me in my emotional safe box without sort of the need to grieve and try to understand the pain they're feeling and stay engaged after the first wave, and at least in LDS culture where there's a funeral, there's a great outpouring. We're talking about the loved one and testimony meeting, and they need that ongoing ministering support. Um, I have it, you know, I in the on the temple prayer roll at times, I put the names of deceased people on the prayer mm-hmm. roll because I think they're grieving. I think they're in a great spot with God and our Savior, but I think they're grieving they feel this is not doctrinal, but this is my feeling. They feel the same human emotions because they're still human in the next life. And they're yeah. grieving loved ones, especially if they died young or sort of just in a, in a situation where their full mortality wasn't 
realize perhaps that they're grieving what could have become and they still understand all the blessings of that will still happen but they're missing their parents if they're a young or their spouse so that's just something i do once in a while personally because i try to put my shoes in the someone on the other side who's maybe still grieving yeah what an interesting perspective i've never considered that because i think we sort of go they pass on and the light and the all the people welcoming them and it's joy 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 which i'm sure which i'm sure that it is yeah to your point i'm sure that it is and there's probably some element of like man i i really miss being able to be you know in a body with Raising my kids. You know, raising my kids or, you know, being with those people. That's an interesting thing I'd never, never, never considered. Well, it's not doctrinal listeners. Well, sure, sure. But it's fun to talk about, isn't it? I'm not suggesting we suddenly go to the temple and put on the prayer roll everybody that's died. No, but uh, but but you but walk it out maybe, in a way that makes sense. And, and everyone who gets upset about that stuff, listen, it's a perspective. You don't have to, he's not writing a book about, anyway. Uh, I will say this, the other thing that, that I'll just sort of adjoin to that, one of the greatest things, and I and I want to say that um, I've learned it in the time that we've known each other, is the ability to say, I don't know what to say to the person. <laughs> That's good. You know, hey, I, you know, I, there's a dear friend of, of ours, her husband um, went into, for a doctor's appointment, wasn't feeling very well, checked into the hospital, died in the same week. So like, he still had laundry at home that he hadn't done. It wasn't like he knew that this was the end of it. And and she's wrecked. They'd been married for 40 years. They never had kids. They were each other's everything, you know, all of these things. And and I, I, I want to say, hey, you know, I mean, they're not members of church. I want to say all the things. And I realize none of it matters. And so, you know, we have had multiple conversations where I just say, you know what? I don't know, but I'm so sorry. And, 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 and I, you know, I search for that right thing to say, and I, I won't say the right thing ever. That's just my tendency, but to just be like, Hey, you know what? He's great. You guys had a love that was unique and I don't know what to say. Um, I love that, Richie. You said something really insightful, multiple conversations. So this wasn't a one conversation checkbox thing you are present for this couple even if you don't know what to say and i think it makes or this woman and family i it reminds me that i used to say when somebody died prematurely well he or she was nor, needed more on the other side and yeah. some of my listeners have pointed out to me that you know that's really painful to think a mother with young kids the god we believe in would want her more on that side than this side right um and so it can create some feelings towards God, if that's the God we believe in. And I don't say that anymore because I don't know that's true. Sure. We signed up for a very imperfect mortal world. And part of that is just some fallen world and stuff happens. And I don't try to connect all the dots and create a storyline around it. I just do what you did, multiple conversations. Yeah. Pretty good thought. And I think also we shouldn't create a culture. So if we elevate these people sometimes that have had a, a significant death and um, they've been able to move on, then it pre-programs us how we should respond. Right. Um, if something, if we have a death in our family, well, that's the way we do it as Latter-day Saints. We grieve and then we move on. And um, from a, my therapist friends tell me that now they, that may not be helpful long-term to sort of box up all that grief and not deal with it. It may be better to 
allow that grief to take its course. And that may lead to more long-term healing than just boxing it up and moving on with the stiff upper lip. Yeah. Chapter six. Yeah. Let's keep going. Let's do it. This is better support for single Latter-day Saints. And I talk about, you know, I was married at 29 and I talk about being at, you're shaking your head. Yeah. Menace, menace, menace. And I talk the menace to society. This is, you know, I didn't answer this in the original question, but I remember being, you know, at peace that I wasn't married as a Latter-day Saint. I was pretty confident that I was doing what I needed to do. My mission president told me it's not time-related, it's priority-related, and I thought this is still a priority. And I, But LDS culture wasn't at peace with me, mm-hmm. um, and I felt my identity started to become not what I was doing career-wise or education-wise or serving or just Christ-like attributes, but I was starting to get defined by, you know, the single older 20-year-old. Yeah. And that was the time that was really actually painful for me, and it caused unnecessary inward reflection. Well, what is wrong with me? And, you know, what is missing in my life? And that's not healthy. Some of that can be okay, but the, you know, we all have work we need to do. So this is, and this is part of then our YSA culture. We want to create a feeling for the YSAs that they were complete now Mm -hmm. because they were divine children of heavenly parents. And being complete isn't something that comes in the future when they're married or financially stable or have a career. They need to believe they're complete now. That doesn't take progress off the table. Um, It just gives you, you're working from a position of strength because you're complete because of our doctrine, your divine children of heavenly parents, and they love you. And so that's sort of the focus of that chapter. And a little bit of our word culture, we tried to make our word culture not about how many marriages we could, you know, a scorecard of how many people <laughs> got married, but just, you know, wanting all the YSAs to feel welcome. And we figured they already knew they needed to get married. They didn't need us to continue to remind them. Yeah, it's a it's a unique thing. So recently I've been listening to um, some content created by some evangelical folks. Cool. And uh, and one of the things that I absolutely love about it is that very concept that I think we are getting better about, but that we do not get right a lot of the time, which is children of a heavenly father, good enough. Which again doesn't say you know you you, you know you, you're not working and trying to be better and all that stuff, but like they embrace that like God's grace is good enough, and you are so such a special person because you are created by God. They, you know, it it is not ever a well. I, you know, I need to make sure that I've got the degree and that the spouse and the kids and the house and the this and the the and the other thing, and then I'll be what it is. I, I I'm I have some suspicion as to where some of that comes from within our culture, but man, listening to uh, evangelical people talk about how it's like, yeah, no, I, I'm going to continue to get better, but I God loves me so much right now, it almost sounds. Um, to my ears, to my very Mormon ears. Sometimes it sounds a little foreign, right? Like what? You didn't have to prove it. You didn't have to. And then I'm like, no, wait, this is what I believe too. Hang on. How can I feel this? How can I know this more than just, you know, kind of hearing it and, and, and feeling like it's a a thing that I don't, you know, being able to accept it, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. And that's where I think, you know, covenants is so important. And, um, you know, keeping covenants, making covenants, the temple attendance. So I totally agree with what you just said. 
Should should we wrap it out? Yeah, better. Chapter seven is supporting couples and their decisions about children. Um, and that single Latter-day Saints, just a quick go back, that can be divorced people. I just shared my experience, never married, but um, there's lots of stories from divorced people. Um, there's just a range of single Latter-day Saints subcategories. Sure. And that divorce um, thing, like I felt every bit of that when I was married and then divorced. Yeah. I went to a singles ward and I went, nope, I yeah. was going to a family ward because this does not, this is not the feeling. This is not the, this is not what I need for my religious yeah. progression, I will be doing a family ward and, and find my way this way. Well done. Um, that's part of you just taking ownership of what's best for you within the Had church. To. Had right. to. Um, chapter seven is supporting couples and their decisions about children. And this is, you know, we believe in personal revelation, hear him. And so every couple is going to have different feelings about children. There's even a few stories in there about um, couples that have felt, even though it's part of our sort of temple sealing covenant to have children, they felt personal revelation not to have children. And I'm not inviting LDS couples not to have children, but let's create space for people to receive personal revelation as they're honoring their covenants and committed Latter-day Saints. And there's stories in there about couples that chose not to have biological children, but adopted a mix, foster children, lots of children, few children couldn't have children. Uh, because of infertility and we sometimes just create diff we create awkwardness unintentionally usually about you know when are you going to have a baby or when's the next one coming and we i think we do it out of love and just want to have a conversation but that can be pretty upsetting to someone and you know you know i think our listeners know that somebody has infertility problems in particular um, but people have received personal revelation of one or two kids and both parents are working and they're serving in other ways and they don't want to come to church and be triggered with and not feel like they're full-fledged Latter-day Saints because they don't have a certain number of kids. And that's part of good ship Zion is big enough for um, families with different feelings about the number of kids they should have. And let's create space for them and not create the sifting. We're called to be gatherers and not sifters. And maybe a final thought is President Nelson talks about the gathering of Israel. And I think in the past, I just think of non-members, mm -hmm. <laughs> our efforts of missionaries to find them. And I still think of that and love that. But I think a lot about our own members. They're Israel. They haven't been completely gathered yet just because they've been baptized. They need to feel welcome, needed, and belonging and understood. And we have work to do to look inward and say, what can we do to gather our own people to help them feel um, needed? Because they bring value and we're better off with them and their contributions. So that's kind of my final thought. Yeah, you know, I uh, it's a thing for me that when I think about like, I mean, I think it it falls into any of these, the personal revelation, you know, whether whether it's kids or, you know, whether the individualization of like grieving over death or any of that stuff, right? Like people are individuals and so much we want to be like, this is the box of this thing. Yeah. And when you come along, you'll figure out the same answer that I have figured out. And I think that that's where we get ourselves into huge trouble. And I just, like, I get it. If someone came to me and said, you know, I have had personal revelation about the word of wisdom. And, you know, I feel like God said to me that, you know, coffee because of some physical thing is a thing that I need to do, right? Let, let's take this very, you know, whatever example. 
okay. Okay. I'm, you know, to me, I, it, where I think we get in trouble is it's like passengers on this ship have, uh, pearl necklaces and, a and, a you know, blue, blue blouse and a blue skirt. And that's what the women look like. So come on board. If you look like this and the men on this ship, they wear suits and mustaches, but don't have them touch the, and I think that we do this. <laughs> I mean that I'm very literally am describing the tabernacle or the tabernacle choir temple square, but like it, it's a more interesting ship. It's a, I, I think it's a a better weighted ship. I think it's, you know, I I don't think it's our place. Very often, if ever, to be, you know, saying things like, "Hey, I know you think this, but let me go ahead and insert myself into whatever this thing is." In in any of these things, in any of these things you talk about. That's why I love you so much, Richard. Thank you, Richie. You're doing good work. I don't even I don't even want to like you, but I can't help it. You're just <laughs> uh, teasing me. Um, you know that whenever we chat with folks, that uh, that uh, I ask you a series of questions because of the nature of this particular episode. We're in your parts with other. I would just be curious as to when you think about uh, your faith and your favorite part, current day, this day. What are what are you thinking about? What comes to mind immediately about your faith? Your favorite part. Well, it's um, understanding of the atonement that came through the Prophet Joseph Smith, that we have a Savior that loves us, and um, that capacity is un- is not f- finite. Um, and we're all wounded. W- w- there's the sin woundedness, but I'm talking about the other woundedness that comes through mortality. Just life is hard. Mm-hmm. And the Savior understands that, and he can take that yoke on him, and he wants to. It doesn't add to his burden. He's already paid the price for all of our woundedness. And so let's all turn to the Savior and let him take upon our, I'm paraphrasing that not correctly, yoke our, I'm paraphr- <laughs> yoke our woundedness on him. Yeah, we need therapists too, but the Savior's, you know, that's my favorite part of our doctrine right now. Yeah. I appreciate being able to visit with you, sir. Thank you, Richie. Best DJ in Utah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country, uh, but especially here in Utah. Been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a a prom or two for different listeners of the Cultural Hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com, or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the Cultural Hall, because maybe, just maybe, I give a Cultural Hall discount Uh, All sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. Uh, Whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop, and they start at only $29 a month. And it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. All right. So in this block of the Cultural Hall, I'm excited to welcome back uh, Richard Turley. Thank you for being here, sir. You're welcome. Uh, and I'm excited because when we visited before, uh, we were talking about the uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre, Mountain Meadow Massacre, uh, and you alluded to this project. And if you listen very closely to that episode, you can hear that you knew about this project well before Elder Oaks announced it. But you have, in fact, been commissioned 
which I want to ask about, to write okay. a book called Joseph the Prophet uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So the first question is, uh, when it when they say commissioned, is it they come to you and they say, here's a bag of cash and we want you to write that? Or what does that mean, commissioned? It means that they called me in and asked me to write the book. Okay. And there are very few commissions in the history of the church. This is yeah. very highly unusual. And so uh, I guess my question with that would be, is it considered a, a calling? Uh, I don't, that word was not used, okay. but it, I, I certainly feel that in my own heart. I feel that this is something that I'm doing because of the feelings I have in my heart. Yeah. And and what an honor uh, as you think about it, or as if you looked into it or other people have told you, what are other things that the church has commissioned in its past? Well, there haven't been very many things that I would say are commissioned in this sense. Uh-huh. Certainly the first presidency was very interested in James E. Talmadge's Jesus the Christ. Uh-huh. He had given a, a series of lectures and they wanted him to take those and put them together, which they did. In many ways, you can hear an echo of Jesus the Christ in Joseph the prophet. So there are some similarities between the two projects. Tell me, what are those What are those similarities? Just uh, a commissioning or beyond? Go, let's go a little bit deeper. So I'm not sure the word commissioning was used for James E. Talmadge. It might have been. I haven't seen a record that says that. But certainly the First Presidency wanted him to take the research that he had done and put it together and refine it in such a way that a book on the Savior Jesus Christ, the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, could be available to all the members. Mm-hmm. And of course, Joseph the prophet was the prophet of the Restoration through whom Latter-day Saints believed the church was formed, founded. So uh, I also think when I think of um, the church commissioning things, like that puts you in the company of like Minerva Teichert as well, who was commissioned with some art pieces. That's some that's some pretty heavy company, James E. Talmadge and Minerva Teichert, Richard. Well, it's a fun thing to do in my senior years, if you want to call them that. Yeah, it, you, yeah, it, it's fun to me. Um, we joked around about it when we chatted before, how you are now busier in your air quote senior years than you've ever been before. So I appreciate you giving uh, the church and all of us your time for sure. Well, there are lots of things people can do in retirement. You read books about retirement, and they generally say, well, you know, the first year people do the things they want to do. If they're if they're a golfer, they golf. If they're a skier, they ski. And after about a year, they begin to think, you know, I'd really like to contribute somehow to humanity. And I didn't have to go looking for that. It was given to me, and I'm grateful to have this thing to give meaning to my later years. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how they they called or they asked or commissioned you to do this? I was invited into a meeting and they asked. That's the short version. The the long version, at some point in the future, I might write down, but that's essentially what it is. They asked, I responded. The approach that I'm taking is very much like the approach that I've taken to other books, like the Mountain Meadows volumes. I'm not doing this project alone. If you look around at how books are typically written in the academic world, they're generally written by professors who do this part-time. Mm-hmm. And if if it's a really significant book, it may take uh, you know seven years for them to write. Sometimes they have a research assistant aiding them in that, sometimes more. But let's just say on average, a really good book is written in seven years by a professor working part-time with a part-time assistant. If you consider a full work year, we'll just call it 2,000 hours. I, I don't, I've, I've never worked a year that short, but let's just call it 2,000 <laughs> hours. And let's assume that that professor can put 
7,000 hours into this book and his or her research assistant could do the same. So you've got, say, 14, 15,000 hours in a major book as opposed mm -hmm. to a minor book. Imagine what happens if you can put 150,000 hours in. So the volumes that we did on the Mount Meadows Massacre were team efforts. We had dozens and dozens of people helping us sure. all over, giving us information. And this project will be assembled, if you want to call it that, in much the same way. We already have dozens of people who are doing research using various ex levels of, well, not only various levels, but various types of expertise mm -hmm. to help gather information. The Joseph Smith Papers Project provided a very good foundation. If, if you think of one of the great pyramids in Egypt mm -hmm. and think about, say, the bottom third of that, that foundation on which the pyramid rises from there is figuratively the Joseph Smith Papers. It took us 22 years, roughly, to finish the Joseph Smith Papers, 23, plus the earlier work that Dean Jesse had done on them. So decades of work to lay that foundation. Now that we have that foundation laid, there's a good opportunity to create a biography. But the biography will be narrative in nature, and it will necessarily have to summarize certain things because narrative biographies don't spend a lot of time in analysis. Sure. So if you can think of the biography as being the top little pinnacle of the pyramid that is sort of the ultimate at the top, then what we're going to be doing over the next several years is to construct that infrastructure underneath it. You'll see a flowering of research on Joseph Smith, as many of these people who have agreed to assist will publish articles, either in various journals or perhaps in book form, that will provide the foundation on top of the Joseph Smith papers for the biography, which will rest at the very pinnacle. So uh, give me an idea of when we think this is going to be completed. Is that, uh, is that a date on a calendar that we've circled and that when you wake up in the middle of the night, you look at that date and go, how are we ever going to do this? Or is it a little bit more vague? It's not a specific date, although okay. I do have a Gantt chart that we've created that sort of tracks all these many pieces. Mm -hmm. You have to do that in a project of this sort. Yeah. But I suspect it's, uh, it's many years off. When I was asked that question at the recent Joseph Smith Papers Symposium when the project was announced, I, uh, I smiled and quoted Michelangelo, who, when asked when the Sistine Chapel would be done, said, when it's finished. Yeah, perfect. It'll be done when it's done. Stop asking. Now, I, <laughs> I do have a curious question about that, because you are the, you are the, um, the visible person with the project, or cer certainly the head of it. The book will be um, you know, notated as authored by you but a team works on it. How come How come that is, or why is that, or is it because they want to give it to one person, or what? how come that works that way? So I was asked to write it, uh -huh. and I chose to have a team assist me Okay. for the reasons I've already described. If I were to do it as a one-person project, perhaps with one assistant, it could rise to one level of quality. And if I bring in a whole team, it can rise vastly higher than that, and I chose the latter. You know, uh, visiting with uh, my own father, who's like, you're able to talk to Richard Turley. And I'm like, oh, yeah, my old pal Rick, of course we are. He said, what what could be written that hasn't already been written? And I'm sure you've gotten this question, but I am curious. Like, what does this hope to do that other books that have been written about Joseph Smith have not done? Well, first of all, this is going to focus on Joseph Smith and his role as a prophet. Some biographies have attempted to cover his entire life in all detail about all aspects. Mm -hmm. We're going to focus primarily on his life, his prophetic role. Second, the Joseph Smith Papers Project has provided a wonderful foundation 
And to that foundation, we can add additional works that have been done by other scholars who have written about Joseph Smith. But with this team of people that we've assembled, we can do some things that haven't been done yet that will lay a foundation for a new biography of Joseph Smith that will have new information in it, provide a different picture of him than we've ever seen. For example, many of the Joseph Smith papers, people in the process of creating the papers discovered areas that needed more research or clues that could lead to additional information. We kept the team, I say we, I helped start the project and those who oversaw it helped to focus the team so that it remained focused on the papers themselves and not having people go off on tangents here and there. But now that the Joseph Smith Papers Project is finished, many of those great Joseph Smith Papers scholars who made notes about other th areas that needed research, now they can go off and do that mm. as support for the Joseph Smith Biography Project. And finally, I think that when you dig deeper than anyone has ever dug before, you see the picture better than anybody else has ever dug before. The Joseph Smith Papers provided a great foundation. We've got dozens of people doing work right now to do additional research. We have already, and we will continue to find new information about Joseph Smith that will help to inform the biography and illuminate his life. One of the things that I know um, people, I don't think concern is the right word, but when something is commissioned by the church, um, they have the question of not authentic. I don't think that that's the right word, but you know, because people are tricky, people are, um, you know, it, not everything is sunshine with people that there are, you know, things that happen in people's lives. Are those going to be things that will be addressed uh, with the prophet Joseph within Joseph, the prophet, this book that you're writing, or are we, are we focusing more on sort of the doctrine and the result from Joseph's life? So if they relate to Joseph Smith's role as a prophet, yes, they will be included. Although in, in saying that, I just finished, as you know, with Barbara Jones Brown, a book on the Mount Meadows Massacre. We ended up having to trim 80,000 words out of that manuscript before we could turn it in, in order to get it to the size that the publisher wanted. You always want more space when you're writing something. Mm -hmm. So all historians, all historians select what goes into their work. It is impossible to create a biography that fully maps every aspect, every aspect of any individual's life. I don't know if you remember the back in the 1970s when we used to talk a lot about semantics mm -hmm. and, and the, the man who really brought that to our attention basically said the map is not the thing. If you were if you were to create a map that fully documented every aspect of the area it covered, it would be as large as the area that it covered. And of course, that's impossible. It makes the <laughs> right. map useless. Right. So this biography will be a biography of Joseph Smith as prophet. And we will do our very best to include all of the important elements related to his role as a prophet, whether whether that is material we've heard about in the past or something new. And of course, Joseph Smith, as in his role as prophet, he said and did things for which he was chastised in Latter-day Saint scripture. So that much of that, of course, will also be part of this biography. And you talk about it being sort of a narrative, which to me... It, at least in my mind, hopefully this is accurate. It it uh, that signals, and I go, oh, good, I'll be able to read it because some of those highly academic books, I'm like, what are we doing? What is going on right now? This is this is far too deep for me. Um, I I sort of equate it to something like uh, the Saints Project that the church has done. Is it going to be in kind of in that vein? 
Very much like that. When we started the Saints Project back in 2008, I pulled a team of people together and I said, almost tongue in cheek, we are going to do something highly extraordinary. I'm kind of echoing what Emma Smith said when she started the Relief Society. So we're going to write a history that people will actually want to read. And I said it tongue in cheek because I've had associates come to me and say things like, you know, I have three readers, my mom, my dad, and myself. <laughs> Historians often write to each other and highly academic works are couched in that kind of vein. When we started the Saints Project, our goal was to have millions read it, and that's proving to be the case. Because mm. it's in narrative form, it's in story form, millions have read it. Now, it's on a strong academic foundation. If you look at the notes that come with that, particularly if you use the electronic version, you can bridge and dig very, very deeply on lots of subjects. So this will be similar to that, although the reading level will be higher than what we have for Saints, but lower than what you have for your sort of hard academic materials. So the idea is that it will appeal to the general audience and be read by millions. Is there a particular part of Joseph the prophet as you think about him, as you think about his life as the prophet, and um, as you look at your life, is there a particular part that you're excited to learn um, more about? I began studying Joseph Smith at an unusual depth when I was about 15 years of age. I'm 67 today. Today so is your birthday? No, not today. Oh, I, okay. I was going to say, you're about to get me to sing you happy birthday, but okay, okay, 67. So I've, been, I've studied his life for over 50 years, and the more I study him, the more intrigued I am. Now, you have to, you have to realize I'm kind, of, I'm kind of impatient when it comes to reading and studying things. You know, if I watch a movie once, generally that, that's all I'm going to watch it is just once. Same with reading a book. Mm -hmm. But there are certain things I can go over and over and over again. Joseph Smith's life is of such depth and interest that I've been going over it and over it again. The more I go over it, the more things I learn and see and understand about him. So his entire prophetic career from the time he first had his experiences, his spiritual experiences as a youth until his martyrdom in 1844, that entire period is of interest to me. But I also feel that in many ways it crescendos in Nauvoo. Mm-hmm. So is Nauvoo kind of the part that I, I want to know a little bit about what, because I love the prophet Joseph as well. Having the opportunity to serve my mission in Kirtland, I, you know, I, I knew that I was literally walking where the prophet had walked. And so I feel sort of a, a greater closeness. Maybe that's just in my heart to the prophet Joseph than maybe some other people um, would feel. But is there a particular part of him being a prophet that you're like, man, I cannot wait to, to, go down this rabbit hole or to be able to share this stuff that I've learned? Is there a particular part? As I've studied his life, what I've discovered is that he was into a lot of areas of doctrine and understanding long before we thought he was. Mm. And he's trying to bring the members of his church, the Latter-day Saints, along with him to grow and progress over time. But it becomes difficult because sometimes when he moves too fast, they they don't like that. They rebel against it. So he's patiently going along for much of his life. And when he gets to Nauvoo, he gets a sense that his life's about over. And he finally just throws caution to the wind and says, I'm going to let it all come out, mm. knowing that it may result in my death. And it does. So the Nauvoo period of his life is the culminating portion. And so far, the way we've got the chapters mapped out, Nauvoo will probably be about half of the book. Wow. Wow. That's such a, uh, man, I'm, I'm sort of intellectually salivating as I hear you talk about this, uh, book and, and 
I, you know, I should let you go to, uh, to, uh, get to work on it so we can get it just that much quicker. Are there any sort of, um, or I guess probably more accurately asked, what are the, what are the sort of oversight that the church, whoever that within the church is, has over this project? Meaning, is there a committee that once you guys get this all done that they go, okay, Richard, we're not going to put that in, this got to go, or how does that sort of approval of the material go? So this being a commission, at some point I will turn over what I have finished to the church and then they'll decide what happens to it from there. But in the meantime, I have written more than 20 books. Mm-hmm. And in the writing of those books, I've never had anybody who is sort of overseeing my work on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. I oversee my own work and oversee teams of people. And that's the approach I expect to follow on this volume, yeah. that I will just go forward with a group of people who I've come to know over the decades who have great expertise in various fields or areas of study or research, and th- they will do their work. I will take that work and bring it together. And then we'll end up with a final product. That, and once I'm satisfied with that, I'll turn it over to the church. I like the idea, though, in my mind's eye, I like the idea of almost like you defending a dissertation where you would get called <laughs> into the quorum and they're like, Brother Turley, great to have you here. We have a few questions about your work that you've got on page, you know, and being able to do that. I know that's not how it is, but there, there is a certain part of my heart that wants, you know, a, a Richard Turley dissertation defense as he as he talks through his book well who knows at some point in the future after i turn it over they may have some questions for me of course i'll be i'll always be happy to answer and you're a person of integrity which i love so much is that yes. you know you, you're not this isn't ever going to be a you know try and you know mudsling or anything like that i think that you um certainly as we've discussed and other things that you've discussed you you are able to say hey this is a sticky point this is a difficult thing this may be a greater thing that needs context that we need to talk about but you're the one thing that i i take a lot of great trust in is that you're not just going to be like oh no 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 we're not going to talk about that and it's the significant part of who joseph the prophet is um is there uh, if, any- it, if oh, it deals with joseph the prophet we'll tackle it yeah and I know a lot of people are probably pretty excited about that because it it is a commission thing by the church and you have yourself and this team to be able to suss it out, to be able to, you know, give some greater understanding to where other people may just be like, yeah, I still don't know about, and obviously I'm vaguely talking around maybe polygamy or something like that, but that'll be, that'll be a part of the subject of this book. It will be. And I, I, I think as with other things that I've been uh, blessed to participate in the past. There'll be new understanding, new information, and that people, when they when they read the book in the end, we hope that they'll be both informed and illuminated. Are you nervous about it at all? I'm really not. That's I can't awesome. think of a better way to spend these later years than doing what I'm doing. And your wife's on board, I would assume, or is she like, come on, Richard, I thought we were going to travel. What are we? <laughs> She's on board. I think she knows this makes me happy, and so... Uh, we, she and I still spend time together, uh, usually in the evenings and weekends, but you know, most of the time, this is my focus. An incredible uh, project. And I just think it's um, amazing um, what you do where you talk about over 20 books. And and certainly some of the, the books that you've written are looked to as like the official word on, and I'm thinking Mountain Meadows Massacre, probably 
uh, at the forefront of all that. The question I, I want to kind of leave uh, on is as you go to write about this very significant subject, you're working with your team, um, what what sort of, um, what would be the word that I would want to use in this? What sort of um, practice do you have to get yourself um, spiritually like prepared to be able to do this? Because this isn't just, you know, what you're writing isn't just like, today I went to the grocery store and that was great and people were nice. This impacts not only you, not only the team that you work with, but the church essentially as a whole. How do you prepare yourself to to work within that space? You've heard of actors who before filming something or performing will try to get themselves in character. Mm -hmm. I try to get my mind into the mode of thinking the way Joseph Smith thought. Because I think that unless we can understand how he was thinking at any given time, it's very difficult to understand his life and particularly his role as a prophet. Mm, significant. It's Joseph the prophet. No release date yet, uh, but by the sound of it, some of it already kind of written, things coming together, a whole team, and Richard Turley, uh, the man behind the project, commissioned. Uh, I hope that you, when uh, when the book comes out, you'll be willing to come back and tell us all everything about it, the things that you learned, the thing that excites you about it, but that won't be for years. It sounds like so. We'll put. No, but happy to do so. Thank we'll put you. that. We'll put that on the calendar in the in the future. Richard, I appreciate you taking your time. Now get back to work. All right. Thanks again for the invitation. You bet. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative Creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. All right, here in this block of the Culture Hall, honored to be able to visit back again. I think the third time, they say, is the charm, Richard Bushman, to have you back here in the Cultural Hall. It is Richard L. Bushman, uh, author of Rough Stone Rolling, but also author of a brand new book, and I was excited to hear about this. It's called Joseph Smith's Gold Plates. A cultural history. And I would love to know, uh, like, wh what, I mean, I thought we were done. I thought Rough Stone was done, and then we were, we're done, but you continue to go on. What? Why did you decide to do this project? Well, I, I was just intrigued with the gold plates. You know, there's such an intriguing emblem of so many things. You know, just the fact they're gold and a stack of gold, but then with these rings through them, so physically they're quite unusual, and then containing, you know, this ancient unknown language, telling the thousand-year history of a civilization that adds to their mystery, and the fact that they can't be seen. <laughs> no one can prove for sure they ever existed. So they're sort of invisible and yet so powerful. And I was just curious how that combination of things has been treated down through the past 200 years since Joseph Smith uh, first came across the plates. So it's a, it's a story of um, the reactions, the responses to the gold plates. 
So, so if I'm understanding, because uh, truthfully, I haven't had the opportunity to read it at present, and, and part of the reason why I wanted to be able to visit with you is to give me that one last kick in the butt so that I'll get the book and be able to do it. Once I hear you tell me about it, I know that I won't be able to resist. Is it is it uh, contained completely of like um, uh, Emma saying, you know, this is what I observed about the plates, and it's a collection as far as that goes? Or how, for a reader, how are, how are they coming through this book? Well, it's not a history of the plates. Okay. It's a cultural history, which means it's a history of the human imagination. So it's a question of how Emma thought about it, how it shaped her life, how they figured in her life, but also how the treasure seekers thought about it, how the critics, how Martin Harris, how Joseph did. And they all treat them differently. The plates all have sort of a different, they're differently situated. You know, the gold Bible is a way of explaining the plates. Mm -hmm. And so everyone has to find a place for it. And it's especially difficult because the plates are so anomalous. What is there that's like the gold plates? I mean, the Bible isn't written on gold plates. Uh, there's a reference to a plate with the name of God on it, but that's not a thousand-year history. Sure. So they they don't really fit any place very comfortably in religious history. So everyone has to sort of work it out for themselves, right down to the present, when they play a huge role in uh, Tony Kushner's um, um, prize-winning play, Angels in America. So they turn up in novels and poetry, painting, all sorts of places. So I'm sort of tracing just how they how they evolved through two centuries. Is it is it also part of how you have sort of dealt with it as well? Do you see a little bit of you and how you have have treated these things that you haven't been able to see but have been so formative in your life? Do we get some of Richard Bushman within this book as well? A little bit. Uh, readers, of course, immediately want to know where I stand on the plates <clears throat> or with anyone who writes about the plates. Sure. And as soon as you say it, you lose half your audience. If you say you don't believe in them, the Mormons will close the book. Mm -hmm. If you say you do believe in them, a lot of secular readers will think you're crazy and not take you seriously. But so I, I make clear on the first page that I grew up believing in the plates and uh, all through my life, I've just continued to hold on to that belief, along with uh, millions of other Latter-day Saints. You know, critics of the church will talk about that there are made mention, certainly within the time, of other uh, plates that are, are written on metal. Certainly, it's not referenced that they're gold. Is there any sort of um, venture into that kind of stuff? Or are we strictly with the gold plates and and... And with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or with the Book of Mormon, as it represents it. Well, um, there's not a lot of evidence of stuff on on metal plates. There's some. Mm -hmm. There's a, one scholar who's written a paper uh, on that subject, and the the poetry of Hesiod was written on lead plates. But uh, mostly, when scholars talk about the Bible, they express ignorance as to where the Bible is written. Was it on parchment? Was it on bark? Was it on this or that? So they just sort of fish fish around. 
but it's not something, I mean, uh, what do you know about gold plates or any kind of metal writing? You know, it's just very hard to pull anything out of common memory. And so what did Joseph Smith know? Not, not much evidence of anything. What uh, in what way do you feel like the book that you've written sort of complements? Because um, you mentioned a cultural history uh, of the of the gold plates. How how does that complement a reading, or does it complement a reading of uh, the the Book of Mormon as as scripture, or as a, a study of it as a um as, as a history? Like how how does this fit into all that? Is it just another piece of understanding or? Or essentially, I guess what I'm asking is why? Why would we read this as part of it, our study of the of the Book of Mormon? Well, I do have one chapter where I talk about um, the plates in the Book of Mormon, because before the Book of Mormon was published, there wasn't much known about the plates. Joseph mm-hmm. Smith thought they were probably written in the Indian language, so he sent off. Martin Harris with a copy of the characters to people who were expert in Indian languages. So all that has to be developed. And also how who kept the plates? Why were they kept? Uh, who made them and so on? All that comes into existence uh, within the Book of Mormon itself. And what I do with that is to uh, try to make the point that what began as just sort of a history that people were writing eventually evolved into a scripture. Mm-hmm. Originally in the Book of Mormon, the scriptures refers to the, the plates of Laban. But gradually through the Book of Mormon, all the writings of the ancient fathers are sort of lumped with the plates of Laban. So um, the framework I put that in is that the higher criticism is, criticism in these very years that Joseph was writing, were trying to explain that the Bible was actually history and had to be put together the way histories are, pieced together from bits of this and that, written by authors who had a certain perspective. And that higher criticism, which is thought of as a challenge to the Bible, mm-hmm. is actually embodied in the Book of Mormon, because that's <laughs> how the Book of Mormon is accumulated, but instead of sort of bringing down the scriptures so they're less holy, this reverses the track and shows how things that began as a history eventually became a scripture, the word of God. Do you uh, do you consider this to be sort of more academic? Is it a lighter read? If people are thinking, oh man, another great book from Richard Bushman, but I know that there were several words I had to look up as I was reading Rough Stone Rolling. Is it an easier read than something like that? It's much shorter. It's not <laughs> any help. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it moves along. But, you know, it's an academic book. That's what I am. Uh, so uh, people will find parts that are very interesting. Their parts will seem a little bit heavy to them. Hmm. But I tell many stories. There are many, many stories. James J. Strang figures into it, of course. Henry Caswell and the Kinderhook plates figure into it. Uh, and I, there are a lot of novels about the plates. I talk about them. Is there, uh, I don't know why this pop, the question sort of popped in my head, but it, you know, someone that has studied the Prophet Joseph, studied now uh, 
your entire life as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, read many times, I'm sure, the Book of Mormon. Is there a particular like verse or book of scripture that within your life has been particularly precious to you? Well, yeah. I mean, there are lots of really powerful passages. Uh, I'm very much attracted to Alma 32, where Alma's talking about planting a seed. Mm -hmm. and it will grow and you know it's good, and therefore you continue to water and cultivate it. That's sort of an alternative testimony to the Joseph Smith story, which is you have questions and doubts, and then you have a vision, and that's it. Now you know. The Helma 32 is sort of growth, constant reaffirmation. And I'm very much attracted to that because that's how my, my life works. I believe because the, the gospel works so well for me. Makes me be a better person. And as you look at the scope of your life, I mean, you're, you're a spry, what, 42, 43? Is that how old you are? I'm, I'm inching above that to 92, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've seen a, certainly a tremendous amount of growth, not only within yourself, but within the church. Uh, I would be curious as to how you've seen from what was as you uh, began, both life and life within the church, to where it is now. Is there a perspective that, you know, with your 92 years of age and are able to look back that you see uh, not only the growth from that seed that, that existed at the time of the prophet Joseph Smith, but from like your early years to now, are you able to look back and see some of those moments of growth within yourself and within yourself within the church? Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what pops to my mind when you bring up, I'm thinking about changes in the church. Um, one of course is the, um, magnification of Christ in all of our preaching. You know, you don't hear very much about Joseph Smith anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, and again, so it isn't the history so much, but the faith in Christ that really uh, uh, emphasizes. And then there's something that I'm, I've been thinking about recently that impresses me. And I see signs that the church is taking responsibility for the well-being of the whole world. Mm-hmm. For a long time, we sent out missionaries, and if you were converted, you would gather to Zion in, um, you know, Utah, the Great Basin, or what have you. Um, and then the rest of the world was sort of left to its own destiny. Mm -hmm. and we just took care of those who joined. But now, you know, with all this philanthropy, huge philanthropic program, and building up churches and temples everywhere in the world and collaborating with other churches to achieve philanthropic purposes. I see signs that we're trying to, we're committing ourselves to the well-being of all people, not just the converts. And that, that would be a massive change and would affect all of our lives pretty deeply. So I'm very interested to see if that continues to develop. And people will often kind of couch that in like the that we're a worldwide church where for what felt like a long time, we're sort of that, like you mentioned, Great Basin or Utah-centric church. But now it really does feel, I mean, unofficially the the goal to have 500 temples by the year 2030, you know, that is pretty incredible. 500 temples announced, not necessarily functioning in, in, in you know, working order. 
But that, in addition to the growth of the church in Africa, the welfare and and caring for people all over the place, I mean, that is a significant change from just even 50 years ago, you know? Right, right, right. No, it's changed in my lifetime. I would be curious. Uh, I mean, you you said it, so I'm only reiterating what you said. Being 92 years old, are we done, or are we taking on another project? Is what's the next thing? You put this out. Are are you like great? I'm glad that can be done because now I got to get to work on this. <laughs> well, uh, you may know that I'm uh, was involved in the founding of the Center for Latter Day Saint Arts. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm chairman of the board. Probably not for much longer, but I'm interested in cultivating the role of arts in our personal lives and in the life of the church, telling its story through the arts and uh, fulfilling the obligation of beauty. So I mentioned that. And then I'm also interested in um, what I talked about in Radiant Mormonism. How do we in this new world where we're responsible for the well-being of everyone not just church members. Um, how do we go about that? Mm. How do we conceptualize what that's going to be? So I've been talking about grass, what I call grassroots righteousness, how each one of us has a little zone around us where we can be influential. And if you multiply that by 16 million, it gets to be a world force. And if you combine it with all the other people of goodwill, you know, this could be sort of a major force in making the world better. So I'm thinking about that. And then right now I'm thinking about corporate righteousness. How can an organization become righteous and make the world a better place? That's very hard to do. Lots of organizations try, but they always get in trouble. But I think it's a question worth pursuing. And when you talk about pursuing, are you thinking like essays or writing projects or books? Or is it just when you're sitting around musing with your sweet wife going, uh, please pass the potatoes. And also, what about corporate righteousness? <laughs> well, I talk about everything with uh, Claudia over the potatoes or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, I'm, I I talk to my comrades in arms. Patrick Mason thinks very much along these lines. There are centers at BYU. Uh, that cultivate uh, moral and uh, and uh, ethical conduct. So I'm sort of interested in joining forces with others. Is there any thought uh, to, I know that when we chatted before, we chatted a little bit about like an autobiography or a biography about yourself. And I know that this sort of turns a light in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable because you're just a guy who's thought about a lot of things and written about a lot of things. But where you are, um, you are what many people look to as an amazing, you know, member of the church, uh, amazing believer, um, a prolific writer, all of those things. Is, is there any sort of effort being put on your behalf or others to to try and culminate uh, your life's work in a written piece? Yes, uh... I think it's almost completed. Uh, J.B. Hawes has been writing a brief biography in a series that University of Illinois Press is putting out. There's been one on Vardis Fisher and on Eugene England. And so, uh, yeah, that that should be on its way fairly soon. And so you're part of that. But any sort of like longer, because I know those are typically like 100 to 150 pages, something that is 
all Richard Bushman or, you know, there's a Richard Bushman and a Claudia Bushman novel. Is there anything like that in the pipeline or anyone presented that idea uh, to you? Uh, yeah, people mentioned to me and I've, I've written little scraps of stuff electronically. <laughs> there's a lot of material. Um, Claudia's just completing her autobiography titled I, Claudia. <laughs> which, uh, you know, inevitably says a little bit about our lives together and um, the various intellectual and cultural projects we've been involved in. Uh, I I don't have an autobiography on my agenda uh, right now, um, but I our papers are all collected at BYU, so every, all our electronic files will go there, too. So... Um, it's all there if anyone wants to worm their way through it. <laughs> and now people be, people begin clamoring for it, saying, me, please, I would like to. Because the idea of an I, Richard, and an I, Claudia uh, book series, <laughs> that's a pretty incredible thing. I have taken uh, the time that I promised you that I would take. I encourage people to go, and they'll find a link for it in the show notes, uh, to be able to pick up Joseph Smith's Gold Plates, A Cultural History uh, the latest book from Richard Lyman Bushman. Are you, you know, in earlier in the episode uh, that you haven't heard, I visited with uh, Richard Turley about his book about Joseph, uh, the prophet that the church has commissioned. Are you working with him at all? Do you, do you get to speak into that at all? Or are you not part of that committee that he has sort of culminated for that book? I'm not officially tied to it. We talk about it um, quite a bit, and I think he's going to do a great work he'll really be able to make the most of the Joseph Smith papers material. He's got a big team working for him. And I think it'll be a, a thrilling biography. Well, I appreciate your time as always. Uh, be sure to let Claudia know that she is in my sights, um, mm -hmm. set and ready to, to interview her at some time in the future. I saw her kind of poke in the background. Those that uh, <laughs> were able to see the video will notice that she sort of poked in real quick. But I appreciate your time so very much. Thank you, sir. Great pleasure. Yep, Best I'll talk to you. you. I'll talk to you soon. And if there's anything that I can do or that we can do, please let us know. Okay. We hope that this episode nourish and strengthens your body. And that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 